and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, uh, a lot of developments already this week, and uh, we're only halfway through. Um, we've got uh, the governor of Georgia, among others, talking about uh, reopening. Um, we have, uh, by the way, very interesting, because among the things he's talking about reopening are massage parlors and uh, uh, tattoo artists and uh, hair salons and gyms. Um, we were wondering what the White House thought about that. And uh, Deborah Burks on the Coronavirus Task Force said, well, theoretically, it's OK as long as you're exercising social distancing. Hmm. Hard to do at a, at, a, at a massage parlor or a tattoo parlor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, and, 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 and of course, it's setting up a really interesting dynamic, John, where you've got um, governors who are uh, who are moving uh, quite a bit faster than the guidelines would suggest, uh, setting up tensions with mayors, some of whom feel differently about this, business owners who have their own thoughts, and even uh, regular citizens who uh, may or may not feel comfortable with actually uh, getting to this this point of reopening, and uh, and a White House that's been on all sides of this. And yeah, and, and, and a president who, uh, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when he was talking about how he had absolute power and absolute authority over all these decisions now seems quite content uh, to see them uh, play out uh, on the local level. Um, and it's, it's created some interesting moments at the White House briefings, uh, Rick. Uh, these are, are still happening every single day, including Saturday and Sunday. Uh, this past weekend, uh, there was not a briefing scheduled for Saturday because uh, Mike Pence was out of town. You know, he was at the Air Force uh, Academy graduation, and th- there was actually not a meeting on Saturday of the coronavirus task force at the White House. But the president, uh, after the press office put out guidance saying there would be no uh, press conference, the president tweeted that, in fact, there would be a press conference. Uh, so he is uh, clearly uh, liking that moment right there, uh, you know, in, in, in the sun. He did one yesterday that was particularly interesting. Uh, it was another one without Mike Pence. Uh, by the way, no Anthony Fauci either. The president over time is more and more the central and almost seemingly only figure at these press conferences, even though he always has people by his side. Uh, he is... Uh, more and more the one that takes all of the questions. So I wanted, Rick, do you mind, can, can we go through a little bit of an anatomy of, of yesterday's uh, briefing at the White House? Because I, I was there and I asked, I asked several questions uh, over the course of the briefing, and I found a kind of a consistent theme in some of the answers. Let's do it. Okay, so let's start with, um, well, let's start with this question of uh, a topic the president has talked about relentlessly over the past month or so, and that's the uh, the possible therapeutic uh, benefits of hydroxychloroquine, the, uh, the, the drug that is used to treat malaria, and he has suggested this could be something bordering on a miracle cure uh, for coronavirus. He has talked about it over and over again. Uh, now, we, we had some studies come out um, just yesterday, actually. There was a a VA study. Uh, this was of some 300 or so uh, veterans, small study, uh, but a study that uh, preliminary findings suggested that actually those who took the drug were more likely to die uh, than those who didn't. Um, it also said that those who took the drug were less likely to require ventilators. So it's a, it was a bit of a mixed finding, but there was nothing in the study that suggested it worked. There was only 
you know, uh, suggestion that it actually could do worse than work. It could actually make, you know, it could actually increase the mortality rate. So I thought this would be something to ask him about. I also um, know that Governor Cuomo had come to the White House and there have been some clinical clinical uh, trials uh, up there in New York. And I thought maybe this would have been something he, the president might have asked Cuomo about. We, we don't know what those trials have shown, uh, but we, we know that they've looked into it. Uh, so you'd think it would be something that the president would want to know. But anyway, so I asked him about this uh, VA study. Take a listen. You wanted to follow up on the hydroxychloroquine. The hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I'm wondering if, if you're concerned this, this VA study uh, showed that actually more people died that used uh, the drug that, that didn't. And I'm wondering if, uh, if Governor Cuomo brought you back any results. No, uh, we didn't discuss it, and I don't know of the uh, report. Obviously, there have been some very good reports, and uh, perhaps this one's not a good report. But we'll be looking at it. We'll have a comment on a, it. A so panel so. of experts at the NIH is actually now recommending against the use of hydroxychloroquine in combination with ZPAC, which is something you've okay, well, we'll been recommending. I'm always willing to take a look. I mean, you, you'd think you might want to take a look. And what doesn't come <laughs> through in the podcast, John, is that when you're asking the question about hydroxychloroquine, the president was nodding along the way. He knew the question was coming. Uh, yeah. I find it hard to believe that he wasn't aware of at least the VA study, regardless of what, what happened in the conversation with Cuomo. This was out there and in the news, and this is a uh, this is a drug that the president has been um, very vocal in advocating, basically saying, "What's the harm?" Well, this study is out there, and and to me, him him taking that step back and saying, "Well, I'll have to I'll have to to look at whatever comes in," that's a major retreat from Donald Trump. That is not something that he does uh, lightly or, or on a whim. It, it felt to me like he was aware of it, that the White House was aware of it, and that he's uh, decided to take a step back from his previous recommendation. Now, I also uh, asked him about the uh, governor of Georgia, uh, uh, Governor Kemp, um, in this decision to, uh, to, to begin reopening, and specifically concerns that were being uh, expressed by Lindsey Graham, uh, obviously the senator from neighboring South Carolina, uh, concerned that um, that perhaps Georgia was going too fast in, in in this reopening, and any negative consequences could fill could could filter over into South Carolina. Uh, there is no hard border between those two states, uh, and so take a look. At, listen to this one. And Mr. President, what, what do you say to the concerns like Georgia is, is opening up barber shops and bowling alleys and the like? And you saw Lindsey Graham is saying he's concerned uh, that Georgia may be going too far too fast and it could affect people in South Carolina. Obviously, people travel back and forth between states. How do you protect the people of South Carolina, for example, yeah. uh, from a potentially bad decision uh, by a governor in Georgia? So uh, he's a very capable man. He knows what he's doing. He's done a very good job as governor, Georgia, and, uh, and by the way, and South Carolina, uh, Governor McMaster also. So you have two very capable people we're going to find out. And, in fact, I'm scheduled to speak to the governor of Georgia in a little while. But we'll we'll what find out. Graham's concern that what happens in Georgia can well, affect everybody. South I have a concern about what happens everywhere. I mean, we've got those concerns. Uh, and as far as coming back, if they do come back, and they could come back together with heavy on the flu and much lighter on, because I really believe we'll be able to put out the fires. You know, it's like fires. And we've learned a lot. You know, we've become very good at this. When you look at uh, what's happening, when you look at the numbers coming down, a lot of states are in really great shape. You're going to see a lot of openings. <laughs> So, um, again, this is a very different question than the one about uh, hydroxychloroquine, but 
this was similar. He didn't seem to be up on the details here. Uh, he, what we learned in the answer to this very specific question is that he likes both governors, uh, both Republican governors. And and I think you, you saw it over the over the course of last week when he was shifting his the, the president was shifting his messaging on, uh, on on whether he would require states to to uh, to reopen or not. We've seen a couple of interesting developments since then. Uh, one is uh, these actions by uh, a smattering of governors, including some Democrats, like the the Democratic governor of Colorado. We, sh- we should add, but mo- mainly Republicans in southern states that are moving uh, more quickly toward reopening than even the president's strategy. Would uh, would seem to permit. We've also seen these protests begin to to break out in, in states, primarily states with Democratic governors, uh, and yep. um, there's a lot of debate um, about how organic these these protests are, uh, how representative they are of public opinion. Um, but the president has uh, found himself in a position of not wanting to offend uh, what you what is a crowd that is very much uh, very much reminiscent of of a Trump rally. A lot of MAGA signs, a lot of Donald Trump uh, 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 pictures uh, that are on display. Um, we should note there's, a, there's some guns being brought to some of them. There's even scattered Confederate flags. Uh, this is this is an awkward political moment. And the president, I think, is sensing that, particularly in his base, a lot of people want to get back into action. But he's also hearing from those medical professionals, including the folks at so many of those briefings behind him, who's saying, not so fast. Uh, and, and a lot of warnings about what happens if things were back to action uh, and, and back to life as quickly as he seems to want. And, and he's, uh, he said at the briefing about the protesters that they are all complying with social distancing and they're, you know, six feet apart and all. I mean, that is, that's not true. It's not true. It's not true. You look I mean, at the you've pictures seen the, you've seen the video, yeah. you've seen the pictures. It's, it's not, it's not true. Some are, but, but Some. there's no question that there's, there are massive violations of the, of the edicts uh, around social distancing, around wearing masks in public that are happening at some of these protests. No question. By protesters who don't believe in the guidance, who think that, they, that this is a manufactured threat. Now, one last clip, if you don't mind, uh, we, we could go on. <laughs> these, these press briefings go on and, you know, you get it, you get, you get it. So it's an interesting situation. You get repeated uh, opportunities to ask questions of the president. So I decided uh, for my final question to take a look back. I usually want to look forward and what is happening, but but look, there's been a lot of second guessing about how this whole situation has been handled. And one of the things that I have found a recurring theme of these briefings for uh, really since the beginning, since the beginning of March when they when they started, is the uh, the talk of testing, and you have widespread concern across the country by uh, healthcare workers, hospitals, governors, individuals about the, the, uh, the, the lack of widespread available testing. And the consistent theme from the briefings is testing is great. We're doing a great job on testing. So I wanted to ask the president about this. So here's the way I put it. Uh, Mr. President, at that podium back on March 9th, Vice President Pence said that over a million tests had been distributed, and then he said, and this is an exact quote, before the end of this week, another four million tests will be distributed. Um, as you know now, uh, six weeks later, we still aren't at four million tests. I don't what, know. I, I don't what know what to say. With the testing. Uh, ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Again, I'll say it for the fifth time. We have tested more than any country in the world, and some of the countries are very big. Okay, more than any country in the world, we have one of the most successful, if you call mortality rates, 
because one person, and I always say that for you in particular, one person is too many. But we've done very well our testing. If you add them all up, we, we've tested more. Now, I don't know what Mike Pence said, but I'm sure he could answer that question. He said four million tests, and we're six you know weeks what? later. You ready? Again, we've tested more than every country in the world even put together. So that's all I can say. As far as Mike, he'll answer your question when he's here. We'll be back tomorrow. I want to be really specific about this because there's a lot of misinformation in the president's uh, response. This was March 9th. And Pence, with the president at his side, said that there would be – the tests were going out rapidly. He said uh, uh, there, there, were, there was a million out the door, and by the end of that week, there would be four million. And we still are less than four million tests. And by the way, Rick, that does not mean four million people. That's four million tests. Tests. And tests uh, yeah. several people have had to be tested multiple times. Um, so – we are nowhere near where, by the by, the, these new guidelines by CDC, we need to be to get to phase one because phase one requires an ability not for everybody to be tested, but to be able to go in if 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 there is a, you know, if, the, if there is a flare up, if there is an incident of coronavirus, you need to be able to test that person obviously, and you need to be able to test all those uh, that that they've been in contact with. You also need to be able to in the in the high risk populations at nursing homes and the like, you need to be able to test. Uh, anybody going in uh, uh, to uh, into a, a place with with an at risk population, and we just don't have the, the the requisite number of tests yet in this country, and there has been no acknowledgement of this whatsoever um, by uh, by the administration. You, you get the sense listening to these briefings that we're you know we're testing more than anybody in the world. Well, wait a minute, we're we're bigger than anybody. I mean, we're you know this is not if you talk either per capita or if you talk in terms of um, the, the size of the outbreak, we are way behind on testing. And besides, we're the United States of America. The question is, do we have enough t- testing to deal with the outbreak? It's not, you know, how do we compare with Korea? That's right. And beating other countries isn't the game here. And, and I, no. it also isn't, I mean, this is not just a question of accountability for previous statements, although that's a big piece of it. The way that you asked the question and the president ducked around it repeatedly uh, speaks to that. But this is something we've heard it consistently from governors, and it's an increasing tension point, something that I have my eyes on as a political matter, as well as a policy matter, as a public health matter. You don't know how bad it is, and therefore how you can even begin to think about reopening until you have that kind of adequate testing. And we've seen governor after governor pleading with the the president for a national strategy on testing. And his answer has been, this is the responsibility of the states. And uh, to to your point earlier about about this virus not respecting state lines, that's a big piece of it. And in terms of the strategy, the the need for a national strategy is is clear and glaring. It is a bipartisan call and is something uh, that this White House has, has, has ducked around pretty consistently. And I think for you and others at the White House press corps, asking the president, asking the vice president this question repeatedly to, to prod this along hasn't changed those facts. And we are still now today on April 22nd, far behind where any any of the public health experts say we need to be on testing. And it's interesting to watch the president's tone from, from briefing to briefing on this. Sometimes he's highly combative and on the offensive and he's very political. I mean, he's always quite political at these things. But I thought what was striking here is uh, a little less combative and a lot more, you know, I don't know. 
I don't know what's going on. I mean, a, a lot of, you know, each of those three clips that we played, there was an element of, you know, I'll have to check into that. I don't really know. Or you'll have to ask Mike or I'll have to look at the study. I haven't seen it. Or I'm going to talk to the governor later. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how it's going to play out, but, um, but my sense is that the president is fully aware of the failings of hydroxychloroquine as a, as a miracle drug that he'd been touting. And I think it kind of hit him, uh, uh, as he's seeing this because he had, he had put a lot into that. Um, and he had kind of, he'd put all the chips on, on, on that, on that card and, you know, um, and, and look, John, there are promising treatments out there, uh, uh, with, uh, you know, hopefully there, the, 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 the initial, there's some initial promising, uh, signs of a vaccine. Obviously that's going to take more time. Uh, but you know, the, 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 the miracle malaria drug does not appear, uh, to be what the president suggested it was over and over again. And John, there's another, there's another political tell in this, which is, that the president um, almost every day has singled out a new perceived enemy. And sometimes the enemy is the White House press corps, as, as you found out firsthand, you third-rate reporter, you, yeah. cutie pie, John Carl. Uh, sometimes it's the, the World Health Organization. Sometimes it's, it's been China. Uh, of late this week, it's been immigrants and um, his vow now to sign an executive order uh, shutting down immigration, except not really shutting down immigration at the same time that we're, we're opening up the country. This president, he, he has a keen sense of his political standing. And when you see him shift messaging like this, that in the past has been when he's uncertain of his political footing. He's looking for Rick. new new enemies. So what, who, what's going on? Is there is there a disruption? Yeah, there, there's a little what's disruption there. I'm sorry, and we have to take a quick break. But I, there was a little bit of a disruption here. I, I don't know if you've if you've heard the news here, but um, you know we're all working from home more and more, right? Yeah, um, yeah of course. And I've got some company here, and I, I think you might have some company as well. Let me let me see. We got we got uh, I've got a dog. You got a dog. You got a dog. I've got a dog. Never... You know the old saying, you know, Harry Truman, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Yes. And um, you're living it. She's such a well-behaved <laughs> uh, rescue pup that she's here, and you don't even know she's here because she's she would never never barked in to interfere with a podcast. Mm. Tell us about. Tell us about it. What's her name? What's going on? Uh, her name is Brooklyn. Uh, Fauci was a uh, was a close runner-up, uh, so technically that's her middle name. Um, she, we don't, we have no idea what she is. Uh, she's about 10 weeks old and, uh, we, we think it could be a, either a, a lab whippet mix, a lab dachshund, a lab pit bull, a lab border collie, or maybe not a lab at all. Um, but, uh, but she's, uh, she's, she's a, you know, black dog. It looks like she's wearing a tuxedo because she's got a nice, uh, nice bit of uh, white under, under her chin. So uh, you'd like her, but I understand you've got a dog. I do. I'm doing. I'm here with Jason. Jason, come on, come on, bud. Come here. Come here. Come here. He's taking a nap because he's been up. He's been up all night long. But he is. Um, he is uh, about three months old, uh, and he is an absolute cutie pie. And Jason is uh, been provided to us by a fantastic organization called Guiding Eyes, that that uh, puts. Uh, puppies out to families for about a year as they get trained to become uh, rescue dogs or guide dogs or something fantastic with his life. And Jason is an absolute sweetheart. He's yawning for everyone right now. Uh, and he sends his best to Brooklyn. Uh, he can't wait to meet Brooklyn. He just told us in, in dog language. So Jason's Jason have a, a Jason who? Well, he, he was named by the, he was named by the rescue organization. We didn't choose the name Jason, but the kids, the kids have decided that his uh, his name is Jason Garrett Klein, Jason uh, after the former Cowboys 
coach. Uh, I don't know exactly how that came to pass, but little Jason Garrett Klein is is here with us, and uh, and, uh, and Jason probably... Jason Garrett's a Princeton guy. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, maybe that's the maybe that's the reason. You know, the 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 the, the former Cowboys coach and the former Princeton quarterback uh, gets his little namesake here. But he's he's a sweetheart, and I you know it's been it's been. Heartwarming to me to see how many people have uh, taken in animals during this time. It's it's great to see shelters have a hard time uh, finding dogs and and cats for for, for willing families during this time. Yeah, if there's something great. good that comes out of it all, it's a nice one. It's great. This is the time to get a dog, get a rescue dog, or get a heroic uh, future guide dog like Jason. That is phenomenal. All right, he let's take a quick out break. of school. We don't know yet, but if he, you know, assuming he doesn't, he's a hero. Yes, I, I, I've got confidence. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk uh, with one of the governors on the front line of all of this. So, uh, uh, and one that occasionally gets in the crosshairs of the president. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Thank you for joining us, Governor. Glad to be with you. So I, I wanted to, uh, before we start a conversation, just do a little flashback to, to a few weeks ago, to a moment in the briefing room. Let me play this. What I'm asking is what more specifically do you want the governor of Washington? Uh, All I want them to do, very simple, I want them to be appreciative. I don't want them to say things that aren't true. I want them to be appreciative. We've done a great job. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about... Mike Pence, the task force. I'm talking about FEMA. What's the words they're saying that you're concerned about? I think they should be appreciative because, you know what, when they're not appreciative to me, they're not appreciative to the Army Corps, they're not appreciative to FEMA. It's not right. These people are incredible. They're working 24 hours a day. Mike Pence, I mean, Mike Pence, I don't think he sleeps anymore. These, these are people that should be appreciated. He calls all the governors. I tell him, I mean, I'm a different type of person. I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. You're wasting your time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you, you ended up with a T-shirt, that woman from Michigan. Um, uh, so that was, that was my quest Q&A with the president. And I remember I almost fell out of the chair in the briefing room. I mean, for two reasons. One, that he was, because the, the, what prompted that is he was complaining about you and complaining about Inslee. And I was like, well, what do you want them to do differently? What are the governors doing that they shouldn't be doing? And all he comes up with is, well, they're basically not saying nice things about me. So my question is, you're on these phone calls, uh, these conference calls with the governors. Now, it's usually Pence and the task force, but the president's there every once in a while. What? How do you... How do you navigate this, and, 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 and what are your interactions like with the president himself? Well, very candidly, you know, when that happened and then there was a, another one where uh, there were some tweets, you know, I didn't sleep that night. And not because, you know, it's, it's about me. I was worried that it really would impact my ability to get help for the people of Michigan, as you no, during that moment, we had exponential increases in COVID-19 in my state. We didn't have enough masks. We didn't have enough gowns. We certainly didn't have the testing capabilities that we need. We're still struggling on that front. And I think as a nation, that is a truth. And, and you know, I was making observations about the need for a national strategy. I was making observations about 
the need to use the Defense Production Act. I was sharing my thoughts with regard to the problems that we have with regard to getting testing and PPE. And, you know, I, I, I didn't say anything that other governors hadn't said, but for some reason when I said it, it, um, it, it got people's attention. It got his attention apparently. And um, all I could think that night was, how do I make sure that any personal issues here don't stand in the way of me getting what we need? And so I've gone out of my way to make sure that we acknowledge the good, hardworking people of the federal government from the White House on down. I've gone out of my way to acknowledge, you know, the the FEMA director for Region 5, which is where Michigan is, is um, prompt to get on the phone calls with us and and has really been over backwards to help us. And And I've had a you know, a good working relationship with the vice president. And so um, really being mindful of highlighting those things and not, not pulling punches, you know, not, not that it's a punch. It's a, it's an acknowledgement of the hardship that we're really confronting. And I'm still going to, I, my duty is to talk about that, to highlight it so I can get help. Um, but also to, to make sure that I'm, I am uh, always also acknowledging where we have gotten some help. And I think that's the way that I've figured out how to navigate it. And I, I think it's, you know, it is what it is. Is it, is it how it should be? I'm, I'm not going to go there, but it is what it is. And I'm going to do the best I can. Under the circumstances like that. Cause you have, you have two roles here. One, your most important role, you are the governor of Michigan in the midst of, of, of a real crisis where uh, people are frightened, people are sick, people are dying. And you need to get help from the federal government um, in, 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 in orchestrating your response to all of this and to protect your constituents. You're also, uh, you know, uh, part of the leadership of Joe Biden's presidential campaign. You're one of the most, you've, you've emerged as one of the most important Democratic uh, voices uh, in the country in a time when we are about to engage in, you know, we are in the midst of, uh, Strange as it may look right now, because of what else is going on, but but one of the most consequential elections of our lifetime. So you have a you have a political role and you have a leadership role as as governor. Yeah, I'm wearing a number of hats, and you know, um, I I think that the most important thing I can do right now is to put every ounce of energy I have into saving lives and trying to uh, navigate. Uh, steps to protect our economy in the long run, but everything centers around the public health crisis. Everything that I do is focused on trying to make sure that we save lives here. I was this morning on the phone with the parents of a five-year-old girl who um, died from COVID-19 in the last couple of days. Um, you know, to talk to a parent who this this firefighter, her dad, and her mom was a or is a Detroit police officer. And for her dad to share that he was crying in the bathroom this morning because he's looking at her toothbrush. You know, that's the heart-wrenching stuff that centers all the work that we're doing right now. To hear them, the anguish, the fight um, that, that they had on their hands and their hopes that other people don't have to go through that gut-wrenching pain um, is is what occupies every everything that I'm doing these days. And, and that's the most important job that I have. 
Governor, just a little while ago, uh, you outlined some some tough steps, uh, including layoffs of some state employees. You also previewed uh, the possibility of uh, some changes and some some lifting of the of the state stay at home orders in the coming weeks that might be kind of phased in. I'm wondering what kind of what kind of feedback you're taking in now. If a mayor uh, or a, a county official or even a, 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 an executive says, look, we, this is our case for reopening. This is our case for coming up, given that Michigan is such a big, diverse state geographically, economically. Are, are those the things that you're considering now when you, when you think about how you might phase a reopening? Are you looking at this region by region in the state, city by city, uh, even company by company? Is that practical? Well, I'll take input from anyone who wants to give it, but I will tell you that everything that we're doing in terms of assessing uh, risk is all centered around the, you know, meeting the public health needs and avoiding a second wave. We know that we're all eager to re-engage, right? I mean, the governors are as eager as anyone, and yet we also have an absolute duty to make sure that we are Uh, smart as we take steps forward, that we are mitigating spread, that we keep making sure that our hospitals have the capability of addressing a spike if one should occur, uh, making sure that we're doing all the testing we need so that we really have an understanding of the presence of COVID-19 and the ability to isolate people that are um, still infected or are getting infected. And so um, I am, of course, listening to our local leaders. I'm also uh, conversing regularly with business leaders of, of all sizes, right? Small business to the big three and everyone in between. I think that it is absolutely um, critical that as we start to think about reengaging sectors of our economy, that we do it in waves, that we do it in a data-driven way and mindful of how uh, we mitigate risk. And as we make that assessment, we're asking a lot of questions like, is the type of work done outside or inside? Is the type of work done in a setting where it interfaces with the public? Is the type of work done um, in a region of the state that uh, is in crisis or not with regard to COVID-19? Is the type of work Uh, where people share uh, instruments or machinery or tools. You know, these are just four of uh, a plethora of questions that we are asking to assess risk. And as we um, start to, you know, very uh, shrewdly re-engage sectors, we've got to measure every step of the way. And if we start to see a spike, we have to be nimble enough to pull back. And if we see that um, our numbers are are still declining, then we can um, mindfully take the next step. And I think that it's just really important to to be centered around the best science and and a, around the facts and um, moving uh, and communicating regularly. Is there any chance that 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 reexamination includes some industries before April thirtieth, or is this all post April thirtieth? Given the, the statewide picture, we, we've seen complaints from people like uh, people that want to just get out on their boats or move between uh, a vacation home and a primary residence and say, "Look, this just doesn't make any sense." Is that are those the things that could get lifted within before the next week? Well, I'll just share this. You know, Michigan has the tenth largest population, and right now we have the third highest death from COVID nineteen. We have a unique, um, a uniquely bad situation here in Michigan, and that's why 
the of the um, stay home orders that have been promulgated across the country. Ours is the most restrictive, and it's because we've got this the toughest problem per capita. And that's why, as we um, think about places where we could start to loosen. There are some um, natural uh, opportunities there that aren't available to other states because they never tighten it up. Uh, so I, I do think that um, we're assessing daily, essentially, at this point, as we continue to see the trend, I'll have a greater comfort level that uh, some of these activities are uh, pose less risk and, and maybe we'll look at those first. But at this point, I'm not making an announcement here and now. But you, you had to make these moves very quickly and in the face of a real serious crisis. As you look back, did some of these measures in hindsight go too far? I mean, let, let's take Rick invoked the idea of boating, and there's been questions of why did you put the ban on motor boating when somebody could still, like, let's say, throw a kayak in a lake, but they can't throw their motorboat in a lake? Was, was it... Was that a move that, in hindsight, you think might have gone too far? I don't think so. And I'll explain why. You know, the more people that are out and about, the more likely we have COVID-19 spread. We are have the most beautiful uh, lakeshore on, on the planet. We've got more freshwater lakeshore than anywhere else. It is the Great Lakes are a draw. And that's why a lot of us live here and why a lot of us are proud to live here. The desire to go to um, a place on the lake where you get in your car, you gas up your car, and then you gas up your boat, um, these are not life-sustaining activities. And so we wanted to curtail every activity that wasn't absolutely necessary. The more people that are at a gas station, the more hands that are touching that gas pump. COVID-19 can stay active for 72 hours on stainless steel, some studies have shown. And so to think about how many people touch that gas pump in three days, despite great hygienic practices, you can have nurses and doctors and police and fire and grocery store clerks, the people that we absolutely need to keep showing up to work, can get sick because someone has chosen to go and gas up and take their boat out. And I think that's just one example of, of how COVID-19 spreads in a way that none of us really appreciates. This is a novel virus. We're learning things about it every single day. And the fact that um, people would be out and about for not life-sustaining um, reasons uh, poses a danger to others, especially when our numbers are, our death numbers are so high. And um, it was so critical that we bring that curve down. We have seen that our actions are working. The curve is coming down. That's lives that are saved. And the hard thing about being uh, doing good things in public health is you never know how many lives you've saved. Mm -hmm. But it is absolutely sure that we have saved lives. We've brought our curve down. We've saved our health care systems that were on the, the brink. Um, and and all of those things inure to our state's benefit and all of ours. So it's a temporary, um, a temporary sacrifice we're asking people to make. It'll shorten the amount of time we have to be in this posture, and it'll save lives. Governor, before we let you go, I want to play one one more clip. Also, this is this is a view from uh, a couple of weeks back. Take a listen. I'm going to help him vet and make sure he's got a great running mate. It is not going to be me, but I'm going to have a hand in helping make sure that that he has um, got the rounded out ticket that can win. 
So I know you, you, you told the Washington Post this week that you hadn't had any formal communications with the campaign about this yet. But does this mean that you, you see yourself in that advisory capacity as opposed to being someone potentially in the mix to, to be Joe Biden's running mate? Well, you know, I was talking to Mayor Eric Garcetti uh, the other day, and um, he's, you know, we were chatting and we, we were chatting about this. And I said, you know, I had hoped to be on the vetting committee. Um, and, and we both had a laugh. While no actions, nothing formal has happened, um, you know, I, I what I know is that Joe Biden would make an excellent president. And um, I endorsed him when he was here in Michigan. He won. He won resoundingly um, the same way that I did. I think he won all 83 counties and in a primary. And um, I, I have great faith in him and I want to be supportive, whatever role I can do that, whether it's helping him vet someone or it's just helping um, try to get out the word here in Michigan. So, Governor, I can just tell you this is my experience covering politics and uh, covering particularly the, 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 the 2000 presidential campaign. What you want to do is you want to run the search committee for VP. Uh, that's what you should that's what you should ask. <laughs> Dick for. Cheney. Dick, Dick, <laughs> I know. This, this worked. I mean, this is what you want to do. And then you, you run the search committee and then you go through it all. And then it's like, well, look, here we are. Um, uh, Andrea but, but, Mitchell but, asked me that question. Am I going to be Dick Cheney? And I really didn't know where she was headed with that. And I thought, yeah, that's the first and probably last time I'll ever be compared to Dick Cheney. <laughs> um, but just just to be clear before you go, you're, you you haven't like ruled it out. I mean, if 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 Vice President Biden came to you and say, look, I really need you on the ticket, you you, you wouldn't say no to him. You know, I think he's got a lot of phenomenal potential running mates. I really do. And there are so many I would be enthusiastic about. Um, the fact that my name's even getting mentioned is really kind of uh, amazing and it's an honor, but it's not something that I am auditioning for or pining for. Um, I am 100% focused on the job that I have. I have two years to have the opportunity to be the governor of Michigan. I love my state. I'm happy where I am. And um, like I said, he's got a phenomenal uh, cadre of people that he could work with and partner with then. Great. All right, Governor Whitmer, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. And we, we wish you all the best out in Michigan. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. All right. So, Rick, um, I'm going to head over to the uh, to the White House for the briefing. But uh, I, I, I think that was a that was that final answer was was that a maybe? It was amazing. It actually sounds it? like 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 the the typical answer that you you get during the Veep stakes. Unlike this year, where there are a lot of people lobbying openly for it, I think Governor Whitmer is trying, at least in the midst of the COVID nineteen crisis, to not to not look like she's doing that. But clearly, uh, the the focus on leadership, the focus on Michigan, there are a lot of things where you can see Governor Whitmer adding something to the ticket, and the way that her profile has been elevated uh, by these confrontations uh, with President Trump uh, probably only make her more attractive to the Biden team. So we'll see how that plays. Fantastic. All right. We will see how it plays, Rick. Uh, honor to be here with you on Powerhouse Politics. Seriously, I think you're starting to get the hang in this podcast. <laughs> We're figuring it out. We're figuring it out, John. Get, you're, <laughs> right. getting the, you're getting the hand of asking questions of the president. That's, the, that's what well, I can you say know, I'm you. working on it. working on it. All right. Uh, I'm going to head over to the White House. Trevor Hastings, our, our guru in chief on this program. Avery Miller, the person who keeps us all in line. Uh, thank you all. Thank you to the Powerhouse Politics team. We will be back next week. <laughs>